Welcome to the latest Editor's Podcast brought to you by FT Advisor. I'm Simone Kuriaku, Editor of Financial Advisor, and today we're discussing whether we're all ESG investors now. As we come into the fifth year of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, we are all too mindful of the need for countries and companies and individuals to take action. The goals are broad. Uh, they include ending hunger, zero poverty, good health and well-being, quality education for all, gender equality, the creation of sustainable cities, clean water, infrastructure growth, climate action and clean and affordable energy. Some of these goals may surprise people who've heard of the SDGs, but who may have thought that all 17 revolved solely around climate change or the environment. Now, in a way, they do. Uh, studies have proved that, for example, women and children are the most severely affected by climate change, with reduced access to work, higher levels of childhood poverty and hunger, rising levels of sickness and poverty among this group. So if you tackle gender diversity, for example, you improve women's access to work, uh, access to clean water, improve children's access to education, and hopefully improve their physical and mental well-being. So if you can tackle even one element of these 17 goals, you can positively affect change among several others. But where do these goals fit into the ESG investors journey? Now, we all know that environmental, social and governance factors are being applied across pre-existing portfolios and new funds and trackers are being created along ESG lines. We see the, the headlines nearly every week. But how far does the E, the S and the G go in determining what is a good investment and what is merely a fine ambition? What really makes it worth an investor's while in interrogating what the ESG credentials of a fund or a stock really are? Joining me to tackle some of these issues and more are Adam Robbins, Senior Investor Relationship Manager in the UK for Triodos Investment Management, Dereth Richards, Head of Kleinwood Hambro's Client Solutions Group, and Angus Parker, Head of Developed Equities and Global Equity Climate Change Fund Manager for HSBC Global Asset Management. Welcome all. So let's start. Actually, Dereth, can I start with you? What have the UN's SDGs ever done for us? Well, they provide us with a reference framework, of course, um, but there are many frameworks as a, as a bank that we are trying to uh, look to to just determine how responsible and how sustainable we are. So we also look at the UNEP-FI principles for responsible banking, both of which provide us with a framework that we can actually look at the different pillars of the various initiatives we're all working on to move our responsibility um, obligations forward at the moment. I think the um, SDDs are more aspirational perhaps than the principles for responsible banking which provide us with very clear defined pillars for a framework. Mm. Adam can we uh, turn to you it'd be interesting to know what sort of framework um, which, uh, which you operate by I mean are, are, are you in agreement with Delith is it, is it perhaps more of a aspirational goal than a practical framework that the UN has produced? Um, yes, uh, in agreement um, to a certain extent. So, I mean, the, the way we look at the sustainable development goals uh, within our business is that they are clearly a policy agenda. Um, you know, they offer a framework allowing companies and governments to demonstrate how they're helping to advance sustainable development um, by minimizing negative impact, etc. Um, but we, we actually um, have developed our own 
approach using uh, transition themes effectively as an investment agenda. Um, when, when we construct any investments, uh, impact investment solutions, which is all we do at Trios Investment Management, we, we approach them with the view of what is it that we're actually trying to achieve and change. So we're actually looking at forward-looking solutions, um, and then we map our solutions across to the sustainable development goals so that they are in, a, in an easily recognizable language um, and one that uh, potential end investors can understand, of course, as well, and see the impact. Indeed. Angus, I know that HSBC did actually create a bond framework based on the Sustainable Development Goals about um, three years ago to try and sort of highlight the impact and the need to, to tackle these um, or to, to try and reach these, uh, the, these really aspirational goals. Could you talk a little bit more about HSBC's work with, uh, within the SDG and with the, actually within the, the whole of the ESG world? Yeah, I mean, this, you know, the, the SDGs were a big promise, weren't they? The lives of billions were going to get better. Um, but I think, you know, in your introduction, you talked about how the, the integrated nature is so important, how it's universal. And so I think, um, you know, we, we're quite cautious about, about the use of them specifically from an investment perspective. Of course, they're a framework, but they weren't specifically you know, designed for investors. It was much broader than that. And I think sometimes you see companies or investors and, and commentators kind of taking an a la carte approach to the, the 17 goals, you know, just talking about the easiest ones. But to me and to us, I think that misses some of the points of the SDGs. You know, it misses the goals and, and you know, fails the promise, actually. And, and that kind of integrated thing that you, you talked about in the introduction, I think is important. It can work very positively um, where people you know, address one goal and that helps them with knock-on effects on some of the other ones. But equally, it, it can work the other way around. So... Like all these frameworks and all these data sources, we need to treat them a bit cautiously. And of course, they help provide a common shared language, which is which is great. And of course, it's easy to be skeptical and it's good to acknowledge. But uh, we just need to be realistic about what they can achieve uh, in the short term, at least. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, I, I've heard the question posed. Um, does, are we all now ESG investors by default? Because lots of companies uh, in lots of sectors are saying that they are improving the their ESG credentials, either the G or the S or the E, or sometimes all three, um, if everyone's claiming that they're operating according to certain frameworks, how does the average investor work out whether their investment really is an ESG investment or whether it's an ESG aspiration or whether it's only one part of um, that acronym? It, it must be so difficult. I'll, I'll stick with, with you, Angus, and then I'll go to Dalith and then to Adam. I think the key key in the question is, you know, being an investor, we're not speculators. So, you know, if you're an investor in equity, you're, it's a long-term time frame by design. Um, you know, these companies don't exist in a vacuum. They have relationships with many other stakeholders. They can't, you know, survive if they're exploiting one of these. And in a way, um, our sort of current focus on ESG is a short form for, it's just a sort of short form for, for thinking about how, how companies relate in terms of their values and purpose with those stakeholders. So what really is, this is, is kind of a pushback in a way to some of the challenges of, of capitalism. Capitalism, I mean, environmental degradation, inequality, lack of trust, all these things can be thought about through an ESG lens, but actually probably should be even more granular in terms of the different stakeholders, the employees, the, the, you know, the, the regulators, the governments, the pension holders. So I think it needs to be, you know, ESG is a nice short form for it, but investing has always considered um, the different stakeholders. And today's, you know, focus on ESG is, of course, a welcome development. 
Mm. So if capitalism is perhaps the cause of a lot of these problems, then perhaps capitalism can also be the uh, solution to mm. these problems. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think about this? How, how do sort of investors get to interrogate the, the ESG credentials? Uh, can they? Is it, is it possible? I think it's a challenging forum. There's such a small swag of different acronyms out there, and even you know an accredited benchmark. Even when you look at you know benchmarks like MSC I leaders, um, there's a certain proportion of the um, output of those companies that doesn't necessarily fit the criteria that maybe some people would aspire to. So for us, we. We try to blend ethical, sustainable impact and ESG factors all together in our responsible investing strategies. Um, and we certainly see that this is something that there's much more client appetite for and that there is enough belief actually being better does create value. Look at Boohoo and the uh, impact on their shares earlier this year when the employment scandal broke. So it's definitely creating traction, but it's a, it's a multi-year roadmap for all of us. As, a, as an industry, um, the S, the, the E is fairly in focus, and the G, but perhaps the S is taken more time to gain the traction it should have done. Adam, uh, we heard there that uh, it's a sort of a roadmap that we all have to follow um, or navigate. How how easy is it to read the ordinance on this? It, it, it is very tricky, um, and it is a real minefield, um, not only for uh, retail and investors and the asset owners, but also for those of us in the industry as well. Um, as Dilith mentioned, you know the the, the data providers that uh, measure and produce indices are very inconsistent, um, and there isn't one uh, one one overview that encapsulates everything. You know, I think the four top. Uh, green or ESG uh, indices probably only agree on one of the top 10 holdings. Um, and for us, our view very much is that ESG is the absolute bare minimum here. You know, we're talking about shades of green. Um, it's possible for an organization to tick many boxes on an ESG scoring system, but it doesn't mean they're having a positive net impact. Um, you know, we need to, we need to focus on those organizations, and this is what we do at Triodos that are actually having a net positive impact. So they're creating some form of additionality. Um, there's a clear intentionality to them as an organization, the products they're producing or the services they're providing. Um, and therefore they're clearly contributing to the sustainability of our planet moving forward. Um, it's really interesting, you know, going back to a point that Angus made as well, uh, linking back to the SDGs. You know, if you think about food scarcity, which is a, a huge topic at the moment globally, you know, it, it can be solved and combated by increasing food production using genetically modified um, organisms, as an example. But if you then look at the net negative impact of that solution against biodiversity protection, it, it makes it a really difficult topic of conversation. So it is tricky for the end retail clients. I think that the key thing that the, that the people need to be doing um, and the investors is is really asking their advisors or their pension providers or whoever it is to, to understand more about what the funds are trying to achieve and, and gain some transparency about what, what actually exists within the portfolios so that they can make a judgment call. Absolutely. And I think you're, you're very key there, that the very key to this is, is transparency, because how can the ordinary person on the street who may want to by a fair trade because they believe that that's a good thing to do. They may want to um, give more to charities because they believe that's a good thing to do. 
but they don't know how their money is being invested and where do they even start? How do they even start sort of interrogating what the fund manager is doing um, when so much of our language is all couched in sort of investmentees? It's a really difficult um, thing for the average investor. And uh, another sort of question that we, we've come across is that um, ESG makes everyone sort of almost by default an, an active investor, because if you say you want to be uh, if you want your funds to be invested along ESG credentials, you have to then be interrogated as a client and say, well, this is what I believe, this is what I mean, this is what my values are, this is what I would define as ESG. And then you're having to look at a fund manager. I mean, it sort of makes you an active rather than a passive um, manager in that sense. Um, maybe it means you just don't want to follow a benchmark uh, index. Or it's, it's a very interesting thing, like, are we all having to be active? Do, do you think that the client um, needs to be more Educated Adam, I'll, I'll stick. I'll stick with you on this, and then then we'll we'll move back. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. I mean, look, I, I think I think clients are becoming more educated. You know, there's there's a huge amount of information out in the universe at this moment in time, and there's increasing awareness from everybody. Um, you know, here in the UK, as an example, with what's happening with climate, with food production, um, with um, the disparity um, in poverty um, and social issues. Um, the, the key thing, as you said here, is actually how, how they can find this out. Um, you know, I think asking their advisors is definitely the key thing. We're, we're also creating more awareness as an industry as well as we move forward on this. It is a journey. And if you look at campaigns such as the Make My Money Matter campaign, um, trying to encourage pension providers to be to be completely uh, transparent with, with what holdings exist in people's schemes and also encouraging the end users as well to understand uh, that they can actually ask what their what their pensions are invested in, and pensions is a great example here. You know, because if we're talking about the democratisation of capital, impact investing, sustainable investing could could be deemed for just those that are you know are associated with having some wealth to invest. But if we actually think about the the amount of capital and assets that are in pension schemes, where most people will be saving in their view, a lot of people on the street don't realise that their pensions are actually invested, so they could be taking the opportunity to alter their consumption patterns um, and living more sustainable lifestyles, but actually having a greater net negative effect by the way their money is invested. So people need to be, be asking about this. Um, you know, at, at the bank here in Triodos offering uh, uh, sustainable bank accounts, we, we, we conduct a lot of research with retail clients um, and we, we discovered that 7% of investors at the moment are satisfied with the level of knowledge and transparency about where their money is invested. Um, and about half of the people interviewed actually said investment providers aren't helpful in general when it comes to revealing what their money is supporting. So, so going back to the points made, transparency is absolutely key here in access to information. Absolutely. Uh, Delith, yeah, I know Kleinwort is very um, open about the fact that you incorporate ESG into your investment process and philosophy across your portfolios, and you, you try and make this very clear to clients. Um, do you get the impression that clients really understand what ESG is? Is it something that they're really coming to you and asking um, proactively for? Or are they still feeling perhaps uh, a little bit nervous or they want you to guide them and coach them through it? It's a really interesting question because of course there's never a single average client. Um, and we have a, a huge range from you know, foundations and charities that are absolutely um, demanding that their monies are invested in a certain way to at the other end of the spectrum um, one client who, who specifically objected to having 
a kind of responsible overlay on, on, on the portfolio. So part of that is education. Uh, part of that is also dispelling some of the myths that actually a responsible, sustainable framework of investing actually loses money. We, we can you know, show through evidence actually uh, by adding certain filters, removing red flag controversial scores that doesn't actually this, this disadvantage from an investment return perspective. And that's been an, uh, you know, a challenge of education, but it's also about you know, trying to make the statements of doing good. This part of the SG group, for example, we have had a total prohibition on thermal coal investment as a policy that's been rolled out. Um, and that, that, that's, that's been positively understood by clients. But as you take the, the framework to the alternatives for energy, for example, at the end of kind of using nuclear power, back to the bio and food um, comment, comment previously made, you know, there are challenges with the alternative. So I, I think we, we're, we're very, very comfortable to state that we believe that the frameworks and processes that we put in place are, are right. Uh, and it's only part of the journey. There's an awful lot more to do. There are segments of asset allocation where there's still a paucity of solutions that we feel can really provide provide the right sort of implementation, particularly in the alternative hedge fund space. And um, you know, the, the green bond market is still relatively modest for sterling investors. Mm. So I think we'll mm. see far more, and, reg and regulation will also push it to help. Um, Absolutely. Angus, on, on that last point um, relating to regulation, HSB has always been, HSBC has always been really proactive at um, promoting sort of ESG reporting, not only yourselves as, as a bank and as, as a, the investment management arm as well, but encouraging sort of the being a very active investor. Um, could you talk to me about how um, you sort of use your position as an active investor to try and um, improve ESG credentials i would say perhaps in the in the companies in which you invest how, how do you use your role as an active investor yeah i mean i mean hsbc's commitment to esg matters runs deep both internally and externally as you say um so there are things we do as a sort of um you know, asset management wide level and there are things we do from sort of team-based stock specific level so for example, you know, we, we, we've encouraged Japanese boards to um, make sure they're properly a proper representation of, of, of women, for example. So we, we wrote to all the boards there. And then so that's a sort of example of a top down one. And then at the sort of bottom up, you know, we're, we're discussing, you know, picking up on Adam's point on the food. You know, if you've got an agricultural machinery manufacturer, you know, what's the trade off between, you know, precision agriculture controlling sort of um, the use of pesticides and insecticides in, in fields? With um, you know, people moving to, to vegan diets and therefore growing less soya, therefore having less land under under production, therefore leading needing less machinery. So mm. we we kind of discuss with with our individual companies as well how they they, they should make sure their supply chains are are really you know effective and clean. For example, we we talked to a, a UK company the other day that, that told us interestingly that they they try to adopt the highest water purity. Um, tests globally for all their factories and those tests actually come out of China so they deploy the Chinese standards globally because they're the, they're the, they're the highest of, of all so there's some really interesting conversations we can have but I think you know as Dilla said it, this is a journey um, you know when we stop talking about it we, we can maybe sort of uh, claim success but our, our understanding of data sets and relationships will continue to change 
it's really important for us to think about the change dynamic and materiality. So we're focusing on the, on the right things. I mean, some of the ESG um, data sources that we were spoken about earlier, I mean, they're pretty blunt at the minute, understandably. And um, so that can set people off on, in the wrong direction. And actually, you know, you can stop you investing in some companies that have, you know, growing exposure to, you know, wind, wind, um, wind power, for example, as they're getting rid of their thermal coal or whatever it might be. So there's some, some, some interesting issues and you know there's the public face of the product that we present to our clients which has to be kind of authentic and audited by these these uh, these numbers that come out of MSCI and others but actually underneath the surface we have to do a lot of work to try to move companies that at the moment aren't being recognized as doing the right thing into through you know working with them and, and sharing different approaches how they can be recognized for doing the right thing and, and focus on those stuff those, those elements that really move the dial. Mm. It sounds also um sort of complicated and interconnected. I mean, you know, we can talk uh, broadly in investment in investment terms about how we need to educate people more about saving more. Um, but with ESG, it sounds like we have to keep educating ourselves, educating our companies, educating companies in which we invest, educating the clients, uh, educating prospective, um, prospective clients. I mean, where, where do we stop? I mean, it, just, it just sounds so... Um, like you say, you know, it's so complicated. These blunt tools can kind of get, sort of send someone down a little rabbit hole saying, well, I would never invest in uh, thermal energy, so I'm not going to invest in BP or Shell or anything. But actually, if you look at some of these companies in terms of governance, some of them have got really excellent ratings. Well, maybe that's where your client's heart lies in improving uh, governance. So it's, it's a very difficult thing, I should I, I should say. I mean, um, if I come, come back to you, Angus, how do you... Oh, I suppose you, you do mostly with the financial advisors, but how can you encourage how can you encourage the right level of education that's targeted at the right people um, without either bombarding them with information or giving them too little for them to work on? I think encouragingly, you know, um, there's, there's more and more data available, as, as Adam and others have, have said, you know, whether it be in the media, whether it's through schools. I mean, I talk to my children about this and they know far more about these kind of things than I did. You know, they educate themselves through YouTube videos and, and TED Talks. So I think, you know, it, we shouldn't worry that it's a constant evolutionary journey. That's that's the nature of, of, of improvement, isn't it? And um, so I think, you know, at a very simple level, we just need to listen to what we we think ourselves and what others think and then make a plan for ourselves um, in our little world. And then, you know, once we carry out that plan, we need to, to reflect on the impact of it and, and see if that plan's, uh, plan's working. And, and we should apply that to how we make our investments and, and what we look for in potential providers. So I, mm -hmm. I, I'm, not, I'm not pessimistic about it. I think there's an optimistic path there. And I think, you know, reputationally now, companies and, and governments and individuals are, are keen to, to showcase um, what they're doing. Of course, we need to be cautious of the kind of greenwashing or you know, SDG washing or whatever we want to call it, because I think there's some, there's some traps there. But we shouldn't be too skeptical because the very acknowledgement of it is maybe a necessary first step to, to improvement. So is social media our, uh, our educational guide now, Adam? Um, I, I think with an air of caution, again, linking back to what Angus said, yes. I mean, it's, it, you know, the social media uh, behemoth, let's say, is, is very vocal um, and very available to everybody um, around this. Um, and, you know, it, it does provide a, a heck of a lot of information for people. Um, but again, it, it is with a caveat of caution um, because there, there is misinformation on there. 
and, and I really agree with, with with what Angus just said. This this is down to individ, individuals again. It's about an individual saying what is important to them and what do they really want to try and achieve, um, you know, with, with with how they consume, but also with their investments and their savings. And somebody may well have a view that they are comfortable investing in in companies that are trying to alter the way they operate um, and have a good governance structure. Um, so some, you know, the oil majors as examples. Um, other people might feel that it really, really isn't for them to have any part in those organizations and therefore they're going to invest solely in renewables or in a different angle. Um, so, so it comes down to that and it's there is enough information out there. Um, and I think there is there is an onus on, on us within the industry as well to make sure that we're communicating clearly with the end clients and we're working closely with, I guess, the likes of yourself, Simone, and of course the advisor population um, and pension providers to get information out to people so that they can they can use it if they wish to. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like we're, we're almost coming um, full circle. Dallas, you mentioned earlier that every client is an individual and every client is different. Obviously, uh, we sort of know that, but could you just uh, sort of maybe be our, our last spokesperson and, and talk a little bit more about how clients can work with their advisors to make sure they get something that's really properly tailored to them? I'm just going to bounce that one piece of uh, gold information we saw with a survey conducted by Nuveen in 2018, and it said that 78% of investors said they'd prefer a visit to the dentist against investing in a company that pollutes the environment. So, uh, you know, that, that can't necessarily be your average client, but it's certainly there is this groundswell of investor demand and next generation pressure. I think for us as advisors, we we sit to try and translate their long-term ambitions um, with what tools are available to us. And we have an obligation also to use our position of influence on the companies by shareholder engagement and talking to asset managers where we feel that we haven't necessarily got the right tools. I know also when we look at, we're measured by performance, our investors measure us by performance. And we, when we look at some of the peer group, um, you know, without naming the organizations, the peer groups that look at um, performance, some of those have yet to develop perhaps the responsible benchmarks that we are looking for so that we can say, here, measure, measure us against other people that are trying to do good. You know, there are charitable industries, but they're not necessarily following the same framework that um, a, a responsible investment framework would. I'm not sure that I've necessarily answered the question. No, you you have. That, that's that's very clear. And it's very interesting that that piece of uh, research as well is showing that people would rather go to the dentist than uh, invest in something that goes specifically against their principles and does actual harm to the environment. Well, thank you very much. You guys have given me so much to think about. And obviously there's a lot more we could say because there's so much more um, information out there that we could really do a deep dive into. But sadly, we are out of time now to speak on this topic. But I want to say a big thank you to all of our podcast panelists for taking the time to speak with us. And um, if you want to hear the rest of the podcast, um, do go to ftadvisor.com. All our podcasts are stored there. But until next time, from FT Advisor and all of our panelists, take care. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.